Hey, my name is Jim Bull. I'm here with my wife, Selma. Wow. <laughs> Selma's the really pretty blonde sitting right back here. Why don't you wave, sweetie? Yeah, you're going to want to meet her at some point. She is a blessing. But we're here for a few weeks. Take us through the end of the year. And you got to know we count that a real privilege. It's nothing like gathering around God's word and figuring out how does this apply to life. And that's what we do. When we gather together, we worship with our hearts and with our voices, and we open God's Word. It's all we've got. It's all we've got in terms of God's clear guidance and instructions for life. If we turn anywhere else, it gets a little dicey. This is God's Word. And so we will turn there, and, and uh, I don't know about you, I, I sometimes feel like I'm crawling toward the end of 2020. We've been through it all this year, haven't we? Or we've been through a lot this year. My goodness, the COVID thing has changed so many lives. It's changed employment for a lot of people. We've just come through a presidential election that has left a number of people shaking their heads and other people pumping their fists. And it's like, what just happened? Uh, every, everything has changed. Economics is changing. And I gotta tell you though, you know this, our God doesn't change. And the mandate to his people, to his church, doesn't change either. We're people that are to proclaim the reality and the power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, regardless of what's going on in the world around us. That's what we're about. And so for the next few weeks, uh, I hope I can be an encouragement to you from God's word, kind of working off a theme of comebacks, because I believe our God is a God of comebacks. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, hang on to that. Our God is a God of comebacks. And wherever your life is this morning, whether you're facing extra difficult challenges, whether it's health, whether it's your finances, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whatever it is, our God is a God of comebacks, and all through Scripture we see it. It's, it's, I love it. I love talking about it and watching God take something that's beaten down and lift it up. He does that. He's done it all through Scripture. He'll do it in our lives as well. He'll do it in our church as well. So I want to take you this morning to uh, a, a kind of an obscure passage. I want to take you to the book of Revelation, kind of in the middle in chapter 11. And I hope when you hear Revelation chapter 11, you know, really, this guy just walks in the door and we're going to talk about Revelation and we're talking about... I, I want you to know that uh, my point is not at all to get into the details of eschatology and the timing of events and, and all kinds of things that Christians love to debate over. That's, that's not why we're here. God is a God of comebacks and there's just one of those vignettes, one of those snapshots in, in Revelation 11 that reminds us, wow, from the lowest point, God can lift up. He does that here. So let me give you a little bit of a view of what's going on in Revelation, because whether you're familiar with it or not, the first three chapters are essentially about churches and messages to churches. Fascinating study. When you get to chapter 4, John hears a voice that says, come up here and I'll show you the things that are going to happen. It's talking about the future. 
And for really the bulk of the book, the middle part of the book, we talk about one of the most terrible stretches in all of human history. It is awful. And then you get to the end, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, and it's like, yeah, it's a great finish. But in the middle here, telling you what we can only imagine what walking through this period would be like. Now, I, again, I understand there's all different kinds of ideas about Revelation, and I'm not, not here to try and persuade you to some viewpoint, not here to argue anything. I, I am kind of a simple guy, and I believe in just straightforward interpretation, grammatical, historical, literal. And so when I read things in Revelation, I tend to take them pretty much at face value. And uh, that's what I'll do here in chapter 11 this morning. As we enter the chapter, understand what's happened in chapter 6, 7, 8, and, and so forth. The world has just been decimated. Uh, back in chapter 6, you've got, you've got a being that is released on a pale horse that has the authority to kill over 25% of the world's population. Now, how do you get your mind? We're talking about... COVID and the number of deaths and oh it, it it's a virus it's a pandemic it doesn't compare with what happens in Revelation a quarter of humanity killed it gets worse as you move forward because then chapters later an army of over 200 million horsemen I can't even my mind doesn't work that big 200 million horsemen are given the authority to kill another third of mankind. So your population has been decimated during this period of history in the book of Revelation, but that's not all. In your seal judgments, then your trumpet judgments, then your bowl judgments, in the, in the seal judgments, you, you've got a quarter of humanity killed. In, in the trumpets, you've got one-third of all trees burned. Now, I grew up in Oregon, and I want to say right now, I've never been accused of being a tree hugger, but I do like trees. They, 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 Oregon used to, used to be a big timber state. Beautiful. A third of the trees, just imagine what that does to the air in the pollution index. A third of all the grass is burned. It says a third of all the grass. Well, in Phoenix, that's no big deal. Our grass gets burned up every summer. But for the rest of the world, that is kind of a big deal. A third of the oceans, the seas, turn to blood, and all of the animals, a third of them die. I can't even imagine what that's going to smell like if you're out on the high sea. A third of the rivers, a third of the lakes, the freshwater, turn to blood. What an awful, awful, awful. Oh, and a third of the stars go out. Bloop. And a third of the sun Somehow, how's that, I, I don't know how that's going to happen. It just says a third of the sun, which for those of us in Phoenix, that actually is kind of good news, <laughs> except that we may need to rename our basketball team. Instead of the Phoenix Suns, it'll be the Phoenix Partial Suns, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like, but the picture coming into chapter 11 is not pretty uh, on the earth. So here it says in verse 3, chapter 11, and I, this is the Lord speaking, and I will give power to my two witnesses. Who are these guys? Well, 
It says in an obscure passage in the book of Revelation, two unidentified men step onto the scene and garner the world's attention in a most unpopular way. Because many of the things we've just talked about briefly are laid responsibly at the feet of these two witnesses. And we'll find out why in just a minute. They wield what appears to be superpowers. Part of this passage reads like a Marvel comic book. It's almost hard to get your head around it. They're proclaiming God's truth to a world that doesn't want to listen. That's tough. Yet there they are, strong, in control, doing what they were sent to do. And I will give power, verse 3, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now again, when I see numbers, and particularly numbers in the book of Revelation, I tend to think those are the numbers. Uh, sometimes we get a little loose in the way we interpret Scripture. I, I think 1260 doesn't mean a long time. It doesn't mean a, a general period of history. I, I actually believe, reading it, this is God's Word, that that means 1,260 days. And so that, that's the period that these two witnesses have power to prophesy, proclaim God's truth. And we're going to find out in a minute that they're in Jerusalem, kind of headquarters, and they are hated. One, because they're proclaiming the truth. They're just talking about Jesus. And apparently people come to faith in this period. There's also, we read elsewhere in Revelation, 144,000 witnesses Proclaiming Jesus. People put their faith in Jesus. These two witnesses proclaim the truth. Dressed in sackcloth, mourning over the fact that the world is not repenting. They're not turning back to God. They're over every terrible thing that happens in history. So there they are. They're preaching the truth in verse 3. They're described as olive trees and lampstands, referring back to Zechariah chapter 4 which we won't take time to, to explore this morning. But here's the next thing they do. They eliminate enemies. Now, this, this is kind of interesting. And for most of us that you just believe in the love of God and the grace and the way we ought to live in this world, this is, this is a little bit hard to swallow. They eliminate their enemies. It says there, and if anyone, verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, it says at the second time, this is how they must be killed in this manner. Whoa. Now, think about it. These are God's men that he empowers to preach truth for 1,260 days. They're so hated that there apparently are going to be those that try to take them out, those that try to I don't know, how. They, maybe they bring in a, a military attache and, and then they come. A group from the west and a group from the north and they sneak around and these guys are outside proclaiming truth and the world's cameras are on them. They're broadcast globally. People are, who, what are these guys doing? What, these people are, they're, they're ruining the earth, these two. They'd love to get rid of them. They hate them. So here comes a military you know, attache. They're, they're going to get them. They're going to get them. And it's, as soon as one of the witnesses has a feeling for what's going on, he elbows the other one and says, hey, see this guy over there? <laughs> Toast. I, I mean, that's weird. That's unusual in Scripture, but that's what Revelation 11 says. Anyone tries to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. And I know 
There are those that would say, well, it's uh, symbolic of some really harsh words. I, I, I just think it means fire comes out of their mouth and destroys their enemies. What? These two, we don't know their names. They break onto the scene. They're only here in chapter 11. And they got power. Preaching the truth, eliminating enemies, and this is a fun one, controlling the weather. It says there uh, in verse 6, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they can turn water to blood. In the days of their prophecy, that's 1,260 days, they have the power to just no rain. No rain for three and a half years. Now, we live in Phoenix where we don't get a lot of rain anyway, and I came from Oregon where they get way too much rain. I gotta tell you, it's a shock to the system to see people in Phoenix when it rains dancing in the parking lot. It's raining! And I'm going, what? No rain for three and a half years. You see why people hate them? They try to take them out. They, they have the power to survive. They can kill their enemies. They have the power to control the weather. And I, I think it's kind of ironic in a day and age where man has actually come to the place where we think we can control the weather. Yeah, we think we can control the weather. Yeah, it's all about these numbers and that model and this. I, you know, come on. God created everything with the words he spoke. He has the earth hanging at the appropriate access, going around the, around the sun at the right speed, the moon around. He put it all in place, and it's perfect. He controls the weather. We don't do that. But these guys can make it not rain for three and a half years. That's unbelievable. And the fourth thing they do, and the reason they're hated in a more general sense, they torment the world. In the rest of verse 6 there, it says, Turn the waters to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. They are making life miserable. They're hated. Proclaiming God's truth, pouring out God's judgment with the power that God gave them, and people can't stand them, and yet there they are. Wow. That's like nowhere else in Scripture do you see anything quite like this. But then, then things go south. Then there's a horrible turn of events. What does it say here? Well, when they finish their testimony, 1,260 days, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, kill them. Oh, no. Oh, no, these are God's empowered servants. These are the preachers of truth. These are the ones, they can't die. That's, that's not how the story, that's what? And not only are they killed, it says their dead bodies are going to lie in the street of the great city. And then it's kind of interesting here, which spiritually is called Sodom. Spiritually, it's not actually Sodom. But Sodom is where immorality just blossomed. And Egypt, it's not actually Egypt, but Egypt is where idolatry proliferated. So to be clear, John says, where also our Lord was crucified. Okay, that one's easy. We're talking about Jerusalem here, and those are some not nice things said about the city at this point in history. They're dead, they're in the streets, 
Then those peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies. I think this is going to be on every major network. It's going to be on the news for three and a half days. Finally, we're free of these miscreants, these awful people that were destroying all the ecology of our planet and the people that were going, yeah, yeah. And, and what do they do? They leave their bodies in the street three and a half days. That's the height of indignity. They leave them in the street, cameras on, now and then just say, there they are. See what happens to people that defy us? They won't allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And here's, here's what's really, it says in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They're going to have parties. They're going to make merry. They're going to send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. I want to ask you, what kind of gift do you send to someone over a deal like this? These guys got killed. Well, the, yeah, I've got a gift for you. What? They're partying. They're singing. They're making merry. Ding dong, the dudes are dead. Which two dudes? The nasty dudes. Ding dong. I mean, they're having a good time over the death of these two witnesses. Kind of shows you what shape the earth is in. They torment the world. Wow. But then, it says there in your notes, when defeat seems to be imminent, God often enters the situation. When defeat seems, when it's at the bottom, and this is one of the themes of the Bible. You know, when you, when you read it through again and again, you realize there aren't a whole lot of different themes in the Bible, but this is one of them. God is able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. God is a God of comebacks. I love this theme. And it's one we'll follow here for a couple weeks as we look at a few other incredible examples of God taking a hopeless situation and pulling it out of the fire, causing victory to take. That's the kind of God that we serve and that we believe in. And, and this morning as we're here together, I, I really don't know very many of you. Therefore, I have no idea what's in your life right now. It could be that some of you are in, in very difficult marriages. And you, you just, you, you've tried everything, you try to counsel, you just, God is big enough to reconcile man to woman. I just, he can. It may be that your finances are in a place like, ah! God is a God of comebacks. Maybe your family relationships, maybe your health, maybe I... Probably all told in this group of people, we have a whole truckload of issues, problems, and challenges. And I want to tell you again this morning, God is a God of comebacks. He loves to get the glory for working powerfully in the lives of his children. So here we go. Verses uh, 11 to 13, after... The three and a half days, this is so good. Three and a half days of celebrating, three and a half days of gift giving. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. <laughs> I've never gone to a zombie movie. I'm just not into that kind of thing at all. But this is nothing like that, I'm sure. This is literally two men dead 
verifiable. It's been on television around the world. Everyone sees it. They've celebrated. They're making it a global holiday. And well, I, I, I see it while the camera's on. All of a sudden they stand up and they're absolutely alive. Would that freak you out? It says here, and great fear fell upon them. Great fear. Everybody saw him. Whoa! And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Wouldn't you love to just be there to see that unfold? Their enemies saw them. They are scared spitless. And I got to tell you, this is my, just for a moment now, this is my pure humanity speaking. If I was one of those two witnesses on the way up looking down at a bunch of people agape, I would have the hardest time not going, neener, 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 you know, but, but that's not part of the passage. That's just my humanity, so don't you just erase that I said that. When defeat seems to be imminent, God often enters the situation. So there it is, up in a cloud. In the same hour, there's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed, and it says at the end of verse 13, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that is an amazing statement, and, and let me clarify, when it says they gave glory to the God of heaven, it doesn't mean they fell to their knees and started singing praise songs. Because you read the rest of the book of Revelation and all the way through, everything that God pours out on the earth, they just, they just spit hatred. They will not repent. But in this moment, when they saw those two witnesses go up in the cloud, great fear, and they acknowledged this is a God thing. I think giving glory to God is, is acknowledging that God is in this. Even if they're unbelievers, even if they hate what's happened, whoa, this is, this is God doing this. We give glory to God in, in, in very simple ways. And, you know, we've been in Arizona 13 years. I don't even remember the number of times that I've watched the sun come up. If there's just a few clouds, it is spectacular in Arizona. You cannot help but go, God, what a creative God you are. This is fantastic. Or the same thing with the sunset. Just looking at nature, you can't help but acknowledge God. That's giving glory to God. Anything in your life that you acknowledge that God's a part of is giving glory to God. And that's what people do uh, at, at this point. So let me, let me go to some principles to live with based just on what we've read about these two witnesses in this obscure passage. Here's the first thing, and these, these aren't profound. We, we know this, but these are good reminders. First of all, human comebacks require man's competency demonstrating man's ability, man's perseverance, and we love comebacks. If you Google comebacks, almost the entirety of the page are sports stories. Because that's often where we associate a comeback. A team's way down, comes back, wins the game. So I will, if you'll just bear with me, I'll just tell you one, one sports story out of my own life. I went to a small interdenominational Christian high school in Portland, Oregon. And they didn't have a lot of resources. But my senior year, I'm finishing up high school. My senior year, they scraped together enough to launch a football program. And for a senior in high school that followed football a little bit, I was like, oh! 
I get one year. I get a chance to play football. I can't wait. I'd never put on the pads. I never. So I tried out and found out when I did that one other senior went out. Two seniors in my entire class went. I thought, come on. We hadn't had football, and they were afraid they'd hurt themselves for basketball. And I just thought, God, I'm playing. I'm playing. So two seniors, four juniors. And then this whole sea of freshmen and sophomores started a varsity football program. I was excited. We went out, and, I, and my coach said, you can throw the ball, you play quarterback. Okay, so I played quarterback. In our first game, we played the team that won state the year before and lost 50 to nothing. And I kid you not, we were in the showers after the game going, woohoo, nobody got killed, you know, is it good. But the second week, we played the second place team one of our rivals in other sports. At halftime, sitting in the uh, locker room, we were behind 40 to nothing at halftime. And we had been beaten 50 to nothing the week before, and now we're behind 40 to nothing with yet a half to play, and the coach didn't know what to say. He'd never coached football before. He said, well, guys, uh, uh, anybody got any ideas? No, <laughs> he didn't know what to say. And so I did something that was kind of unlike me. I, I stood up, said, guys, we're getting whooped. This is looking bad. I don't know about you, but I've had it. So here's what we're going to do. They scored 40 points in the first half. We're going to score 40 points in the second half. And they start looking, uh-huh. Come on, guys, this is not what we came out of. We're going to go. And I start, I just, I, I'd never been a motivational speaker, but man, I just pulled it out and started, come on, come on. And they started getting excited. We can do this. We, we're a Christian high school. We can do this. And they got all excited. They started banging their helmets on the locker room. And we went tearing out of the locker room, out of the field. And the second half was unbelievable. We lost the game 88 to nothing. Because, because, because human comebacks require man's competency, and we were sorely lacking it. We didn't know what we were doing. Actually, it was, you know, a lot of great life principles I learned that year in high school. But human comebacks require man's competency, and it demonstrates man's ability, and we celebrate it when we see one. But Supernatural comebacks require God's working, demonstrating His power. God's comeback, that's a whole different, supernatural comeback, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And they're all through the Bible. Just go with me with Moses. Your whole life you've been a slave. And now you've watched the entire economy Agriculture, you've watched Egypt implode because of the power of God and the plagues he put to let his people go. And after the Passover, Moses let out the Israelites. Can you put yourself in the crowd? There's millions of them. And they leave, it's like, oh, they don't know how to do anything but be slaves. They'd been that way for over 400 years. And Moses leads them down to the Red Sea, and there they are which isn't a good military decision, but God was leading Moses. Moses went down to the Red Sea, and they camped there for a short time. And as they're camped there, they could hear that kind of faint rumbling in the ground. 
It was the army of Egypt coming after him. Oh no! We're gonna we're gonna die out here. Did you bring us out here to see us die? There's not, not enough graves in Egypt. Will you? They start whining. And, and God at night put a barrier between the Egyptian army and where they were up against the sea and protected them all night long. That alone to make you go, whoa. That's God doing that. That wasn't a committee decision among the Israelites to kind of fix this. It was God's work. Nobody else could possibly get glory for that. But even better, of course, it says all night long, a strong east wind blew as Moses held his staff up and said, stand still and watch the salvation of God. And, and the water, it, it, it blew open. I've never seen anything like that. Can you, can you imagine walking across? I just keep looking to the left and to the right. Is that like a wall of water? Oh, fish, look at that. You know, as you're, what an experience to walk across on dry ground, a sea that had opened up. Now, I tell you what, you talk about a comeback from certain death, that's just one. Could you imagine getting to the other side, watching the Egyptian army wiped out? They sang, they danced the song of Moses. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Then Miriam's song, they're so happy. And then shortly thereafter, one of them said, well, I'm kind of thirsty. Yeah, me too. I'm thirsty. Where are we going to get water? And, and, and here comes the complaint. We don't have any water. We're going to die. I mean, they had just crossed the Red Sea. Probably some of their clothes might have still been damp. And now we're going to complain about water, and God graciously provided water. I'm hungry. Me too. Anybody got anything to eat? We don't have any food. We're going to do it. And the complaints start up again, and God told Moses, okay, okay, here's what's going to happen. And the next morning, when they got up, they went out of the camp, and the ground is covered with something. And they said what probably you and I would have said. What is it? Which is the Hebrew, well, the word is manna which means, what is it? Forty years, millions of people, God provided manna. You talk about a comeback. How do you feed that many people on a daily basis? You talk about a comeback that only God can do. Again, nobody in Israel could take credit. Well, it was our idea to provide manna. Are you kidding? God did it, and he gets glory for it, and supernatural comebacks are the best. Because we can't say, well, we sure planned that out well. Comebacks are one of God's specialties. And I think that's still true today. I think he delights in picking up a broken life in whatever way it's broken. And loving it and encouraging it and maybe redirecting it. And I'll bet if we went around the room and if we had time, there's all kinds of stories right here in the room of people whose lives have been, if you will, salvaged. Whether it's out of uh, uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, some form of addiction. Because God is a God of comebacks. Now, usually in our lives, it's a combination of God's touch in our lives and our willingness to obey. 
our willingness to obey and humbly submit ourselves to God and watch Him work in individual lives, in families, in churches. God is a God of comebacks. So whether it's your marriage or your business or your family, God is a God of comebacks. I want to finish reminding you of probably a passage that's familiar, but it's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It's maybe the ultimate comeback. Paul is writing, he wrote at least 13 letters in the New Testament. He's writing to a group of believers in the city of Thessalonica that had some questions. A church had been planted, but man, their theology was still kind of filling out, and they're trying to understand some things, and they asked the question, okay, we, we believe in Jesus, and he saves us, and he forgives our sin, and we're on our way, but, but, but what happens? What, what about our, our loved ones that die? They believed in Jesus, but, but they're dead. What, what, what about them? Where, where do they go? Where do they, what? they had some great questions. It would have been fun to mix it up with them, and here's what Paul says. He says in Thessalonians, I don't want you to wonder what happened to them. I don't want you to be misinformed or ignorant about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, primarily so that you don't unnecessarily sorrow because it's going to be so good. Let me just lay it out for you again. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Ah, yes, how good is that? Oh, they may have died physically, but oh yeah, they're with the Lord and he's gonna bring back with him those who sleep in Jesus. Then he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, not by our opinion, not by something we read, by the word of the Lord. We're, let me tell you exactly what's gonna happen, says Paul. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So there's an order of events. For the Lord, verse 16, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and nobody's going to miss it. And with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and then the next line, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, whew. Now, again, I'm a simple guy. I tend to take scripture very literally. This is like nothing I've ever seen or heard, but it says the dead in Christ will rise first. As a pastor, I've done literally hundreds of graveside services. So I'm kind of familiar with cemeteries. A lot of people don't go very often at all to cemeteries, and they're kind of, you know, of course, we make them look creepy at night. But now, normally when you're there in the day, it's just a kind of a solemn quiet. Like, well, can I laugh here? You know, it's a, it's a feeling in a cemetery. And people's lives are just marked by a headstone that has their name and the number of years they live. And I often walk through cemeteries wondering, what, I wonder who this is. And I always wonder, I wonder if they knew Jesus. Thessalonians says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I kinda, this is maybe a little warped, but I, I kind of would like to be standing near a cemetery when this happens. Well, wait a minute, these people are buried six feet down. How's that going to happen? I'll tell you how it's going to happen. 
The dead in Christ will rise first. That is going to be awesome. I'd hate to have to clean up the cemetery. I tended to look at cemeteries not as these quiet places. I tend to look at them as potential launch pads for believers in Jesus Christ. <laughs> because that's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. The dead in Christ will rise First, wait a minute, I thought you said that he, the Lord is bringing with him those who sleep in Jesus. Well, death and the word means separation. The separation of the soul, the immaterial part of man, from the body. But when Jesus comes again, the body, whether it's in a grave, whether it's cremated, whether it was eaten, buried at sea, whatever, the no problem for God. I mean, if he created the universe, bringing a body back together is no, no biggie. The body and the soul reunited in now a new resurrection body. I, I think it's one of the coolest things. The dead in Christ will rise first. I've got to finish now. Then we which are alive and remain, love this word, shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up with them to, together to meet the Lord in the air. Can you imagine what it would be like to be caught up to meet the Lord? I mean, I'm afraid of heights. Won't be a problem, I promise you. You talk about a comeback. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, as the one who forgave your sins, as the one who died for your sins on the cross, if your faith is in Jesus, the ultimate comeback is awaiting you. Whether it's from a grave, or whether it's from wherever we are when the trumpet sounds. And if you believe in Jesus, as the old hymn says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Ultimate comeback. Well, no matter, and, and then Paul says, use this to encourage each other. And that's what I want to do this morning. God is a God of comebacks. It's not that he automatically fixes every problem in our life and there's all kinds of circumstances that surround every challenge, but he loves comebacks. When we, as the old hymn says, trust and obey. We follow him, he loves to touch the situation, turn it around and reverse it. He's a God of comebacks. No matter how dark life is today, no matter how frustrating, no matter hope, how hopeless your situation may feel or seem, there is nothing that God cannot do. And he loves a comeback. And Father, this morning we're thankful for your word and the encouraging reminder that no matter what goes wrong in our society, in our world, in our individual lives, we can look beyond. We can look beyond knowing that in the end, you're going to turn everything right. You're going to redo it. You're, you're going to salvage. And we will experience comeback. Father, uh, you know every heart in the room today. You know what's going on, what struggles, what challenges that, man, when they're right there, they just seem too big. You know every one of them. And it's my prayer as we continue to follow you and remain faithful to you. You'd allow us to see your power. You'd allow us to see your touch. You'd allow us to experience comeback in this life even as we will when you call us home. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.